This show has explicit language and probably has mature themes. Hey, John, would you would you give us that intro lick? Explanations. I am Dexter Sorensen. I looked some stuff up on Wikipedia, watched some YouTube about it, and I'm going to explain it to my friend David Gerondale. David, hey. Hi, David. Hey. Hello. Um, I just want to point out that just got over a little bit of a... Sickness. Sickness of flu. And it was definitely my fault. Yeah. <laughs> definitely got it when we were doing the last episode. Yep. Um, and actually, but that's why I sound extra sexy today. So yeah, I know you really that's sound. That's what's going on over here. Mm. Mm. Yeah. You're anyway, wel- what are we gonna learn about today? Uh, real quick, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I need to record some albums while I got this going on. We're gonna do unusual units of measure. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. That sounds fun. Yeah, I've been wanting to do this for like uh, quite a while now. Okay. Mostly just because I think it's fun. It's a fun type of thing. Yeah. And I don't know. I just never did it, but here we are, and we're let's do it. Yeah. Let's talk about some weird ways to measure things. We're going to measure things, and we're going to tell you all about it. <laughs> you might need to talk up a little bit. But we're anyway. We're measure some things, and we're going to tell you all about it. Let's start with length. Yes, let's start with the length. <laughs> We're going to start with the hand measurement. The hand <laughs> the hand is a non-SI unit of length equal to exactly we, four inches. Can we, we, def- we will. Okay. The Wikipedia says, The International System of Units, abbreviated SI, from the French Système International d'Units. <laughs> I don't speak French at all. Système International. Uh. It's the modern form of the metric system and is the most widely used system of measurement. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like... So <clears throat> SI units are... Anytime you get involved in yeah, science, that's are the inter- yeah. what you're using. Exactly. The metric system. Yep. Um, but the hand is normally used to measure the height of horses in some English-speaking countries, including Australia, Canada, the UK, Ireland, and the United States. Yeah, yeah. When you go to a stable, mm-hmm. they'll give you the horse's height and hands. Yeah. So, like, for instance, I used to, when I was doing English style um, as a teenager, I used to ride on this horse, Arthur, who was 18 hands. 18 hands. That sounds pretty high. So they're measured high, at yeah. the withers. Yeah. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty Their tall shoulders. horse. Huh? Shoulders. Top of the shoulders. Yeah, that's what the withers are. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was originally based on the breadth of a human hand from the thumb to the index finger. Um, but in countries where, the, like nowadays, it's only used on like standard horses. And in countries where hands are the usual unit for measuring horse height, inches rather than hands are commonly used in the measurement of miniature horses, miniature ponies, donkeys, and Shetland ponies. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Just a different system for the tiny ones. Mini. I think they want to probably, they don't want to make them 
Miniature equines are not worthwhile of hands. No, see, I think what it is is they're trying to build them up a little bit. Like they're not like, hey, you're three hands tall. They're like, no, no, no. <laughs> that would be you're really 30 short. inches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we got another horse measurement here. We got horse lengths. Horse lengths. Yep. Okay. Horse like lengths. Car length. Yeah. Four cars. For horse racing. I see. Uh huh. So a horse length is approximately eight feet. And sometimes it's just called a length when the context right. makes it obvious, like in horse racing. And shorter distances are measured in fractions of horse lengths. And then so other- they'll be like, he lost by half a length. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and then other common measurements of in like horse racing are a full or fraction of a head, neck, or nose. Okay, yeah, yeah, you hear that a lot, like in, yeah. in movies and stuff Lost like that. By a like nose. by a nose. Yep, and that's it's probably Billy the Kid. By a nose, <laughs> riding a horse. No, 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 no. They never say the name of the the jockey. They say the name of the horse. Oh, the horse is named Billy the Kid. They always have weird names. Yeah, they do. Um, then we got boat lengths. Boat lengths are similar to horse lengths, except for with boat racing. I never would have guessed that. And <laughs> you would have. Uh, they're so yeah, they're fractions of boat lengths expressing margins of victory or defeat. I see. Um, then next we got the light nanosecond. The light nanosecond. Okay, okay, I see. So like we yeah. have a light year. There's a light nanosecond. Like mm-hmm. how far light travels in a nanosecond? Yeah, which is pretty fucking far. No, no, because it's a billionth of a second. Oh, a billionth of a second. I'm sorry. I was thinking like, okay, so what's a microsecond then? That would um, be like that'd a, probably be a one one thousandth of a second. Probably, okay. yeah. That would no, no, no. And I'm I'm not actually sure what that is, but a uh, light nanosecond is defined as exactly twenty nine point nine seven nine two four five eight centimeters, so it's roughly thirty centimeters or a foot. Yeah, I think that's kind of far. Okay, yeah, that is kind of far in for a, a nanosecond, in a billionth of a second. Yeah, for yeah, one billionth of a second. I think so, too. Yeah, this is pretty far. Though I didn't realize that a nanosecond was one billionth. I guess I should yeah. have, having taken chemistry. That's, so, like, the main thing you have to remember. <laughs> I know. That's why I got out of science things. and started getting into, like, writing and technical writing. So I'm like, science is really fucking tedious. Yeah. It, yeah. I'd rather yes, just write about other people's tedium. That they yeah, I, could, I, I would see getting a lot more enjoyment out of being a science uh, author, Writer. like, a, you know, a journalist mm-hmm. than being a scientist themselves. Because, like, the idea of spending this... 10 years on one project that yields, like. It could be. It could actually, even if it even if it is a big discovery, you spend 10 years on it. Yeah, only to have a lot of people rip it apart and then, like, a yeah. few people peer review, like, actually, you know, reproduce it. And then they're like, all right, maybe. Yeah. Like, this um, is my life. But yeah, you could say that the speed of light is one foot per nanosecond. And uh, the light nanosecond was actually popularized as a unit of distance by Grace Hopper. And she was like, really, really fucking cool. I would recommend reading Grace Hopper's Wikipedia page. She was like a Navy rear admiral and like was like a science educator and was really into early computing. And I see. So she was a rear admiral during what? Um. Well, period of time. Do you know about like the? 70s? I think like in the world in World War Two or Vietnam. 
<laughs> it would have definitely been after World War Two because women yeah. weren't allowed. Yeah, no, women and wouldn't have held positions. So it was that probably high. during Vietnam then. Um, and she was actually not even let into the into the Navy because she was like a hundred pounds, and so she was like twenty pounds fewer than what was allowed. I see. Um, sexist. for like the first two times she tr- applied. Um, that's a pretty sexist measurement then. I think so too. I mean, ob- yeah, right, obviously. Um, but yeah, so she would, in her speaking engagements, would pass out light nanoseconds of wire to the audience. And then in, she would contrast it with a coil of wire a thousand times long representing a light microsecond. Okay, which is what I was That's initially taught. Yeah, yeah, what I was initially thought we were referring to in terms of its its fraction of a second. Exactly. Um, and over the course of her so life, so you said that, you said sorry, you said that the micro second a thousand, was a thousand times longer. So then uh, a thousand thousand is uh, a million. So mm-hmm. then uh, that means a, a micro second is a millionth of a second. Yes. Um, and over the course of her life. She found many uses for the visual aid, including demonstrating the waste of suboptimal programming, illustrating advances in computer speed, and simply giving young scientists and policymakers the ability to conceptualize the magnitude of very large and very small numbers. Right, well, like on a more intuitive level instead exactly. of just if mathematically. You can see it, right, if you can like, like see it spread out. You can right. actually and, contemplate like what's the difference between a thousand thousand or a thousand million. Right. Or like, yeah. And, a, and, a, um, and that's really important. I feel like, um, that's one of the most important things for science educators is to be able to take these concepts that appeal to scientists, but that because they're not intuitive at all, um, they don't grasp the public and they no. don't understand what actually is being talked about in a meaningful sense. That's what I mean. Yeah. Like, and so she like did a her really good being job able to yeah, illustrate these mathematical concepts um, in very illustrative ways. Uh, yeah. Well, and also like her being in really into, into like computers and being one of the first people to actually do significant programming in computers. Like, it was a really good way to show the reason for using optimal programming. Okay. Um, Oh, sure. Yeah. That makes sense. She was demonstrating the practicality of, of these measurements too. Mm -hmm. She's saying like, Hey, this is the information age is coming and we're getting to the point where like these fractions of a second really matter. Yeah. Wow. She was way ahead of her time. She was fucking awesome. That's why I'm saying I'd really recommend looking into Grace Hopper. We may do an episode on her because just in doing that small section, I really found an affinity for her, but don't know enough yet. Um, anyway, let's move on. Next, we're going to talk about the seriometer. And the seriometer is a rarely used astronomical measure equal to one million astronomical units. Wow. Yeah, I've never even heard of it. Yeah. That one million AUs is a lot. What fraction of a... So it's so it's um it's equal to fifteen point eight light years. Fifteen point eight. Yeah. Well, yeah, that makes so sense it's, because it's, it's one million times the distance between the sun, which and is Earth. eight light minutes. Yeah. So an AU is eight light minutes, approximately. I think it's like eight minutes and twelve seconds or something mm. like that. But it's approximately eight minutes. So yeah, a million times eight minutes is definitely way more and than so, a year. So one seriometer is about twice the distance from Earth to the star Sirius. Okay, the dog star. Which is 8.611 light years away. I see. 
And then that's not actually the closest star to us. Proxima oh. Centauri is the closest star yeah. to us. And that's 4.3 light years away. Mm, is it? I mean, that's uh, that's what a casual Google search sh- told me. Okay. But anyway, I let's... I thought Proxima was closer than that. I thought it was closer to like a little over two light years away, but I guess I was just mistaken. You could be. I'm going to say you are because I like to be right. That's a weird star <laughs> system, by the way. Our, the closest neighbor to us, the Proxima, the, the Centauri mm-hmm. star system, is what's called a, well, it's a three-body system. No shit? Yeah, it's three stars. Orbiting around each other? Uh, yeah, and Proxima's the closest to us. It's the furthest out star and has a very loose relationship to the other two, but it seems to be orbiting them. Or orbiting their berry center, which is, you know, yeah, like their mutual center of orbit. Interesting. And then the, the So they other have a star orbit orbiting the two other stars. Yep. That's fucking weird. Yeah. And it creates in math what is called the three body problem, which means that if you don't know what the starting circumstances are. I'm gonna put that are, in the notes. Yeah, the three We're body gonna, problem's really we interesting. We may talk about that someday. It it but, it's basically that math math gets so complicated that when you have two objects orbiting each other or have a relationship to one another, it's easy to figure out what the relationship is. But then you as add soon the as third you add body. one third body, it becomes so complex that unless you know the exact starting circumstances of the relationship, you'll never ever figure out what the pattern is because yeah. it seems so okay. random. Yeah, ex- I get that. And I have heard about it now that you explained it. Uh, yeah, it's like... You would have to have a crazy, crazy fucking computer to figure out the yeah. Proxima. And, I mean, system. basically, you'd have to have a computer that was capable of simulating the entire universe. That's yeah. how complex it would have to be. Holy shit! All right, let's move on to unusual units of measure concerning area. Okay. All right. First, we're going to talk about a barn. A barn is about the cross-sectional area of a uranium nucleus. Uh, so it's very small. Very, very small. And the name probably derives from early neutron deflection experiments. Like when the uranium nucleus was described and the phrase big as a barn were used. So, because they have to hit shit off of it in order to. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Um, And uranium is pretty big. Yeah. As far as as atomic nuclei go, it's massive. Yeah. I think, you know, what what is it? Like 238 usually or whatever. Mm. And so, yeah, that means 238 times two particles in its nucleus. Yeah. And so barns are typically used for cross-sections in nuclear and particle physics. Oh, I see. And then additional units... Because you're shooting at it. Because you're shooting at it. You have to hit it. Yeah, you have to to hit it in order to observe it, to Mm -hmm. know anything about it. You have to shoot little photons at it or electrons at it. It's just kind of fun. That is. That's a cute... Um, Additional units include the micro barn (laughs) or the outhouse and the yocto barn. Or the shed. So the Yocto barn is also called the shed. And the, the micro, micro barn, barn is called, is the, called the outhouse. outhouse. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Usually scientists aren't very clever. They're not very about those yeah, things. Yeah. They've done well on that point. Yeah. That. Um, next is the cow, a cow's grass. And in Ireland, before the 19th century, a, a cow's grass was a measurement used by farmers to indicate the size of their fields. And a cow's grass was equal to the amount of land that could produce enough grass to support a single cow. Okay. You'd have to know 
cows and yeah. grass pretty well. You'd have to, <laughs> you'd have, you'd a, have to be raising, raising. You'd have, have to know a grasp your shit. of what that is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, me not having ever raised like a single cow, I, like I worked on farms and stuff, but like. But yeah, you have to have an intimate knowledge of cattle. Very intimate. Yeah. Um, a, a summer in the 4-H club isn't going to give you an idea of what this is. Well, no, I wasn't I was in the 4-H club. I just like... No, I, I wasn't actual... commenting on you personally. Oh, no, but that's true, yeah. Um, <laughs> next, we got a Morgan. Oh, I've heard of this. And, yeah. From that game, Ennis. Uh-huh. It's a fun game. Jonathan yep. hates it because he sucks at it. <laughs> he's shaking his head. He's nodding. No, he's nodding. He's nodding because he, he agrees. Um, anyway, uh, Morgan means morning in Dutch and German. Oh, I see. And it was approximately the amount of land tillable by one man behind an ox in the morning hours of a day. Okay, so I guess if you're a really strong man, maybe that's a little bit of land. But yeah. like, if that was me, that'd be like a quarter <laughs> of an acre. Right. <laughs> um, it was actually an official unit of measure in South Africa until the 1970s. Yeah. And was defined in November 2007 by the South African Law Society as having a conversion factor of one Morgan equaling 0.8562532 hectares. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. So see, it's like, almost that's a more, full hectare. Yeah, that's more than I could do. And I think no a hectare hectares, what is a, a hectare? How does a hectare compare to an acre? I always forget that if it's a little bit bigger or a little bit smaller. It's one of the two, but I can't remember. Hopefully somebody will fix this, but I'm just going to lean on smaller. Okay. Because that's smaller to me. That 0.8 of a hectare. That's also an acre. Nobody's ever going to till an acre behind an ox in the morning. Um, So it's definitely got to be smaller. Um, And it was also the Morgan was also used by Dutch colonial provinces of New Netherland, which later became New York and parts of New England. Yeah, and the in the Dutch were in South Africa too. Yeah, they that's the why Boers. that's why they were used in yeah, both sure. places. Yep. All right, let's talk about unusual units of measure for time. Oh, okay. All right, so first we got Sorry. a shake. And in nuclear engineering and astrophysical context, a shake is sometimes used as a conveniently short period of time. So one shake is defined as ten nanoseconds. Okay. So when, so when like fancy people in older movies are like, are two like shakes in two shakes, yeah, they're talking, they're like in 20 nanoseconds, well, get no, this shit done. No, I think it went the other way. I think like, uh, two shakes of a rat's tail was probably used before. I didn't realize that was the whole idiom. Okay. Yeah. Um, two shakes of a rat's tail. <laughs> or, or a lamb's tail maybe. Okay. Um, but I think that nuclear engineers probably acquired that what i'm gathering is that nuclear engineers and physicists were way more creative yeah than than their most of their scientific compatriots next we got a really really fun one um we got the beard second (laughs) have you heard about a beard second i have not no okay so the beard second is a unit of length inspired by the light year but it's applicable to extremely short distances like those in integrated circuits so the beard second is defined as the length an average beard grows in one second. Oh, that is extremely short. Yeah. That's an exceptionally short amount of distance. Yep. Um, what <laughs> is the conversion rate to something I might recognize? I'll tell you. Kemp Bennett Kolb, I don't know who that is, sorry, 
defines the distance as exactly. Why not? It's, it's Kemp Bennett Kolb. 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 Sorry, but um, I know who that is. Because <laughs> you know you, his name. Well, yeah. Their name? Um, it's exactly 100 angstroms or 10 nanometers. My beard grows at 10 nanometers per second. Yeah. When you say it that way, I'm like, dang, I dang, need to shave every like day a lot, for sure. Yeah. Um, Google Calculator actually supports the beard second for unit conversion. <laughs> um, but they use the value of five nanometers. Oh, that's, that's so that's fifty percent reduction. Yeah. Or well, now I'll shave every other day. Or twice as much, actually. Sorry. Um, but they said five ten nanometers per second versus five. Sorry, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the beard second establishes a rel- related unit of time. The beard inch, which is twenty nine point four days, or fifty eight point eight days according to Google. Dang! All right, that means so the beard, so your, so the average beard grows an inch in twenty nine in about a month. In about a month, yeah. An inch per month. Yeah, and we're in no shave November, and I ain't shaved this month, so we'll see if I get up to an inch. Oh yeah, I forget about that stuff. Plus, you, uh, you, your hair grows pretty fast. We established that with a bet once. Yeah, we did, and I always win those hair growing bets. Yeah, he sure does. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the sidereal day. Oh yeah, yeah, I like. We this. talked a little bit about it. The sidereal day is based on Earth's rotation rate relative to the fixed stars on the celestial sphere. Yeah, so like, let's say you pick one Rather imaginary point sun. on Earth. What's that? Rather than the sun. Right. Yeah, we talked about this in the zodiac, the celestial sphere. So, like, a sidereal day is approximately 23 hours, 56 minutes, and 4.0905 seconds. Hmm. And so, like, this si- the reason why the sidereal day is slightly shorter than the solar day is because the Earth has to rotate slightly more than one turn with respect to the quote-unquote fixed stars in order to reach the same Sun-Earth orientation. Because it moved along because its it, orbit. Yeah, along its orbit, exactly. So, yeah, it has to, because it's rotating, almost, like, backwards mm. essentially counter to its orbit it has to turn more than 360 degrees in order for the same point on the earth to face the compared sun compared to the celestial sphere yes yeah yeah that's, that's cool so the sidereal day is shorter than the like regular solar day yeah next let's talk about the soul um, when conducting missions to Mars, NASA, SOL soul, SOL. Okay. Like the sun. Yep. So like when conducting missions to Mars, NASA typically uses a time of day system calibrated to the mean solar day on that planet. Oh, right. That's right. Yep. That's what's known as soul. Yes, that's right. I learned about this recently. Yeah. And they train people involved in those missions. Let's, we'll focus on Mars to acclimate to that length of day which on Mars is about 39 minutes longer than the mean solar day on Earth. Yeah. Pretty close. It is pretty close, but yeah, just a little bit different. But they do train the astronauts to work on that. Right, right. I'm just saying, like, a lot of science fiction focuses on, like, terraforming other planets. And they focus on the fact that, like, oh, this planet has, like, Earth normal gravity and, like, a nitrogen-oxygen atmosphere. But, like, the idea of finding a planet that has a 24-hour day cycle is so insanely ridiculous. Uh, that also meets all your other requirements. Um, mm. That like you almost have we to don't have like know the how Rick and humans... Morty, 
like portal gun in order to get to a universe like that probably oh yeah yep yeah exactly yeah you have to have like infinite worlds to choose and from access for to you them. yeah um yeah the, and we don't really don't know how humans actually work in a non 24 hour environment and adding mm. like 40 minutes or whatever you said mars is different that's whatever but if you were to have like a planet with an 18 hour long day night cycle there's no guaranteeing that humans would adapt to that without lots mm. and lots of issues for a long time. Or even, or especially, actually even more fucked up would be just traveling to that planet. Because it would take generations probably to get to that planet. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, it's going to get take generations to get anywhere. And then you don't really have a day-night cycle at all. Oh, yeah. So I guess what you would probably do, right, is wanna, you'd want to shift the spaceships, your, your, your colony ships, day-night cycle over, slowly over time from a 24-hour one to whatever mm. it was your destination was. Yeah. Unless, of course, your colonists decide along the way that the spaceship's a much better colony than the planet is and they decide <laughs> never to colonize the planet in the first place because yeah. that's a bunch of fucking work for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So instead of breaking down the soul into SI second units... NASA's Martian timekeeping system slows down clocks so the 24-hour day is st stretched to the length of that on Mars. Interesting. Yeah. And so that's what they call the... And they put that into what they call the Darian calendar. And that's the arrangement of souls into a Martian year. Which gets a little bit more interesting. Because it ma maintains a seven-soul week, retaining... Sunday through Saturday naming customs. But and it also has 4 weeks to a month, but it has 24 months to a Martian year. So it has 668 or 669 souls depending on leap years. Because the last Saturday of every 6 months is skipped over in the Darian calendar. <laughs> 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 it's kind of weird. Yeah, the weird workarounds people get to make yeah. things fit. And they slow down the time and yeah. all that stuff. I, I don't know. I think it's kind of cool. It is cool, and it's one solution. I mean, you have to come up with something. You gotta, yeah. Because um, you're literally now everything is working on two separate calendars, and you have to find a way to sync them up. Like, if we ever want to have people living in a semi-permanent uh, fashion on Mars, mm -hmm. they're going to need regular support. Yeah, and we're not going to be growing in crops on Mars the first year we're there. That's mm -hmm. just not a reality. Those not people plausible. are going to need. Yeah, it's just it's ridiculous. This notion that we're going to set down people on Mars and then suddenly we have a colony there. Yeah. It's stupid. We need an infrastructure in place. We need you need so many things in orbit before you can think about having a permanent settlement on yeah, Mars that watching, means anything. I've been watching this uh, Netflix series that's kind of kitschy, but it's also pretty fun. It's called One Strange Rock. And they have uh, eight astronauts. Um, and it's done by the guy who did Requiem for a Dream and uh, other stuff like that. But they have eight astronauts, including Chris Hadfield, um, interviewed. And it's hosted by Will Smith. Okay. Um, it's pretty fun to watch. It's, I mean, it is a little kitschy and it's fun. But, like, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. But, like, the in most interesting part of that series is listening to the astronauts talk about like what they learned and like the insights they got from being in space. Okay. So I definitely recommend it. It's a Netflix series, one strange rock. Nice. All right. I'll um, definitely check that out. Let's move on. Let's talk about dog years. Dog years. 
<laughs> so, dog years are based upon the popular myth that dogs age seven years in the time it takes a human to age one year. And it's just kind of so silly <laughs> and anthropocentric, the idea that, like... Anthropocentric, exactly, yeah. And the idea that, like, you can equate human development to any other animal's development mm. schedule. So, yeah, like, but if that were the case, a single dog year would approximately equal 52 days. Okay. Um, But, like, you were just alluding to... Well, yeah, Tycho's six months old. The aging of dog varies by breed, and larger breeds tend to have shorter lifespans than small and meteor breeds. And also, the most important part is that dogs develop faster and have longer adulthoods. Yeah, exactly. Relative to their total lifespan than most humans. Humans don't don't go through puberty and enter adulthood by the time they're seven. Yeah. Yeah, like... And then bulk out to their adult size by the time they're 14. <laughs> exactly. Like, that's just... That's ridiculously no. stupid. Yeah. And yet, that's what's happening that's with what my puppy with right now. Dogs, like, dogs are sexually mature by the time they're one year old. Yeah, my my dog is, is now entering his puberty. Tycho, and by dog so years... Yeah, Tycho. Uh, and by dog years, he's three and a half years old. Yeah. That's um, ridiculous. Yeah, and Lemon, she's... Of course it's inaccurate. Lemon, she's eight years old. Um, so she's like halfway through her life. Um, but it also, what's, what's like, silly about it. And same thing with cat years too, is it places your animal into middle and late age way too early, way too early. Like, you, you know what I mean? You're, <laughs> yeah. you're by the time, well, no, by no, no. The time I think lemon is actually middle aged because, um, her breed Australian shepherd is likely to live 16 years and she's eight years now. Yeah, but so like I think middle age for she is humans is often life. considered your fifties. That's what's often considered middle age for humans. Yeah, and when you consider that males it's kind of funny are that that's the case because we're only males really are only expected to live like, like another fifteen years, yeah, or twenty five years. Sorry, twenty five years. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of funny. I didn't really think about that. Yeah, middle age is usually considered like fifties. Um, yeah. and then you know by the time you hit retirement, now you're you're older. It could be that way when we're old enough to be 79. Sure. It could just be like, you know, getting some injections with some healthy cells. That'd be nice. That'd be real nice. I never wanted to die. Well, yeah, I mean, I, well, it's not that I never want to die, but I want I want to stick around long enough to see some cool stuff. No shit. And um, I mean, not know, that there's that's not a, cool stuff going on the, now. But. That's a real sad part about learning about like really cool scientists and like people like, you know, like Carl Sagan, just like. Yeah. People who like he work deserves so to see hard. really cool stuff more than I do. Exactly, he's not gonna. like they just really deserve to like see a lot of the shit that I just saw just by being born in '89. Yep, like <laughs> they like worked for it. And not only that, like it was a bunch of their contemporaries that were coming up with the ideas that I eat up. You know, like things like uh, O'Neill cylinders, like humans living in space in rotating habitats. Mm. That being a common occurrence. And now people like Jeff Bezos are actively trying to make that happen. People like Elon Musk, to a degree, um, are trying to make that happen. Um, what's his name with Virgin Galactic? Um, oh, shit. They're basing their notions and their mission goals on ideas that were just papers being written back in Carl Sagan's time. Mm-hmm. By people like Carl Sagan. By people just like Carl Sagan. People he yeah. hobnobbed with and had, you know, tea with to talk about cool ideas <laughs> that none of us would be having if they hadn't been having them. 
<laughs> I listened to this one podcast recently um, that had like a full two minutes in the beginning of an episode with one of the people saying sorry for a burp. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's unnecessary. We don't care. Come on. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's get back to dog years. Yeah. Um, giant dogs, giant dog breeds and bulldogs tend to have the strongest correspondence to human aging. I see. Because they have longer adolescence and shorter overall lifespans. Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh So those breeds typically age about nine times as fast as humans throughout their lives. So still not on target with the dog year. Yeah, no. Um, Let's talk about the galactic year. Oh, hell yeah, yeah. Um, Takes a long-ass time. It's a long fucking time. And it's the time the solar system takes to revolve once around the galactic core. And to give you an idea, when the dinosaurs went extinct was about half a galactic year ago. Yep. A galactic year is approximately 250 million years. Yep. Um, And it's convenient, like you were saying, it's a convenient unit for long-term measurements. Oh, yeah, yeah. For example, oceans appeared on Earth after four galactic year, four GY. Okay, four galactic years uh, of Earth's existence? Mm -hmm. Okay. And life is detectable at five galactic years, and multicellular organisms appeared at 15 galactic years. Whoa, there's a little bit of a leap there, There's a huge leap there. And the age of the Earth right now is estimated at about 20 galactic years. Okay, so yeah, so out of 20 galactic years, it took 15 galactic years for for multicellular life to appear Mm. complex life and um four for oceans to appear and only half a galactic year ago did dinosaurs go extinct yep that's to give you an idea of the actual the extension the extent of life on earth Mm. and huge amount of times we're talking about yeah um (laughs) so now we're going to talk about the shortest unit of time the new york second (laughs) okay (laughs) the new york second is called like i just said the shortest unit of time in the multiverse it's defined as the period of time between traffic lights turning green and the cab behind one honking (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know that that was the definition that's awesome that is awesome yeah then we (laughs) nice shortest unit of time in the multiverse like indistinguishable <laughs> yeah before you even see it turn green you hear that light <laughs> yeah because the light hasn't even got to you your yet. optical cortex hasn't been able to produce the image in your head <laughs> all right now we got kermetric time kermetric kermetric time <clears throat> excuse me kermetric time is a concept that divides the 24-hour day into a hundred equal t- parts called kermits Okay. So each Kermit is equivalent to 14.4 minutes. I see. And the name Kermit comes from a combination of the surname of the president of the National Research Council in 1983, Dr. Larkin Kerwin. And? And the original working model of Kermetric time was conceived by W. Thayer of the NRC in 1983. Wait, no, I'm sorry. What? How did he... Why is it Kermit? Is it Kermet? No, yeah. So it's, it's Kermet. metric. Yeah. Is that what it's a combination I think of? so, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. I wasn't 100% sure. And so basically, the Kerwin people at the Kermet. National Research Council in 1983 
we're like, hey, here's a cool, let's divide the day into 100 equal parts and call each Kermit, and it'll be a nod to the president of the council. Mm. And also, I just think it's fun. 14.4 minutes is a Kermit. And if you think about 100 units of time... In it day. makes me feel like the day's a little bit longer. It does, yeah. Right? Like I got a hundred fourteen point four minutes. Yeah. Dude, that's like you could easily watch a hundred Saturday morning cartoons then because those are like twelve <laughs> minutes apiece. Because yeah. they got like twelve minutes plus twelve minutes plus eight minutes of commercials, a half hour. Sleep is the only block. thing holding you back. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes sometimes I watch cartoons while I'm asleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next we have a moment. And a moment was a medieval unit of time. And so the movement of a shadow on a sundial covered 40 moments in a solar hour. So an hour in this case meant one twelfth of the period between sunrise and sunset. Oh, okay, yeah. And so the length of a solar hour depended on the length of the day, which in turn varied with the season. I see. And so the length of a moment in a modern seconds wasn't fixed, but on average, a moment corresponded to 90 seconds. Which makes sense, because it's 40... It's it's, it's a... an hour divided into 40 parts. Yep. Which would be a second and and, uh, a third. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, that makes sense. Exactly. So yeah, a moment was actually meant something in medieval times. It times. comes out to about a second and a half. Yeah. That's what doesn't make sense to me. Anyway, but you said it's an average. It's an average. It's an average. Because it gets longer and, and it gets shorter. shorter. Okay, so over, it's an average. That's yeah. why it, it works out that way. Yep. All right, let's talk about unusual units of energy. Oh. So first we got the gasoline gallon equivalent. Or the gallon gasoline equivalent. Okay. Rather. Um, in 2011, the United States Envirmi- <laughs> Environmental Protection Agency introduced the gasoline gallon equivalent as a unit of energy because their research showed most U.S. citizens don't understand the Saturn units of energy. Right, right. And so the gallon gasoline equivalent is defined as 33.7 kilowatt hours or about 1.213 times 108 joules. I see. And yeah, yeah, I mean, it makes sense because when you described it in those other terms, yeah, the, the, the more the common more S- or standard S-I. terms, yeah. Um, I don't know what the, I don't exactly. know how to think so that's of what those. I was saying. That's what I was saying. In my case, they're pretty much right. Yeah, I they kinda, are right. Like, I'm get not a scientist. the gasoline gallon equivalent, but I, I don't can really think about get kilowatt hours or joules. Yeah, exactly. I can, I, I've run, um, <laughs> you know, gas generators. Yeah. I can think about how long that thing can run off how of much one power gallon. Yeah. How much gets. power it can actually do. Yeah. How many r- lights it can run or, we, yeah. But, you know, give it to no. me in joules. And I'm like, oh, man. Mm. So next we got the tons of TNT equivalent. Okay, you hear this a lot, especially and with that's nukes. Exactly. And bombs. And that's similar, similar, similarly used for the same reason. Right, when you hear um, megatons, like when it's like there's a three megaton yeah. warhead that's so, yeah, megatons it goes of TNT. Like kiloton, megaton, and then gigaton. Right. And it's often used as a unit of explosive energy and sometimes for like asteroid impacts and violent explosive volcanic eruptions. Sure. Volcanic eruptions. Um, and so, yeah, it's actually only loosely based on the actual physical properties of TNT. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. M- it's more of a broad definition of energy being released. Yeah. 
Um, then even more powerful, you have the Hiroshima bomb. And similarly, people just don't understand energy. Right, right. Um, so like the energy released by the Hiroshima bomb explosion was about 15 kilotons TNT equivalent or 6.1013 joules. <laughs> Six times 1013 joules. 10 to, thir- 10 to the 13. Yeah, right? I mean, who knows? I don't fucking yeah, know. Yeah, six, t- six times 10 <laughs> to the 13 joules, yeah. I don't know. It would be done in scientific notation. Um, And so, yeah, it's often used by geologists as a unit when describing the energy of earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, and asteroid impacts. Oh, sure, yeah. Just like and sometimes it's, how many sometimes it's not it useful. Sometimes it's not as useful, and sometimes it is. For, like, for instance, for yeah. earthquakes, that amount of energy is being released over a longer period of time in a much larger area. And so, like, people think, like, oh, it was, like, oh, it's yeah. equivalent yeah. to 40 Hiroshima bombs. It's not instantaneous. But, like, all it did was knock people's, you know, shelves down and, like, tear down a few walls. Yeah. And it's like, well, it's not always it's, a good metric. No, I agree with that. Um, the last unit of unusual energy measurements we have is donkey power. <laughs> Okay. I mean, okay, so horsepower is normal, but donkey power is weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, donkey power is a facetious engineer- engineering unit and is defined as 250 watts or about a third of a horsepower. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that kind of reminds me of like unobtainium. Unobtainium on like, uh, what's From it? the, um, what is that movie? Jesus. Avatar. Avatar, yeah. But in unobtainium is a real like he didn't invent that term. Unobtainium is um so like anyone who works in the material any of the material science uh sciences, they use the term unobtainium facetiously, and it's a material that meets all the exact design specifications that would be ideal. Oh that's what unobtainium is. So oh like it's different depending on what project you're working on, what kind of scientist you are. Mm-hmm. It's just any material that meets every design specification that you that desire. You would need, yeah. Yep. All right. Um, unobtainium. <sighs> it's the mythical material. The mythical material. That's that why it's called unobtainium. <laughs> All right, let's move. Let's talk about other notable units of measure. Unusual units of measure. First, we're going to talk about the Sagan. We were talking about Carl Sagan. Earlier. Okay, yeah, the Sagan. But yeah, as a humorous tribute to Carl Sagan with his catchphrase, billions and billions, the Sagan has been defined as a large quantity. Which is technically at least four billion, two billion plus two billion of anything. Okay, so like we have like about a Sagan and a half uh, people on the planet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we have one point five Sagans. Oh, I think people. we're pretty close to two two Sagans, aren't we? Eight billion? I think we are. Close to. Yeah, but nearly, not nearly, nearly two Sagans. Nearly two Sagans of people. Billions and billions. God, I love Carl Sagan. We're going to do an episode on Carl Sagan eventually. Next, we have the banana equivalent dose. This is actually probably the hardest one for me to wrap my head around. Banana equivalent dose. Is it a, is it a measurement of radiation? As in a measurement nice. of radiation. Okay. 
Okay, so yeah, like bananas, like most organic material, naturally contain a certain amount of radioactive isotopes. And in this case, it's potassium. Mm-hmm. And that's even in the absence of any artificial pollution or contamination. Oh, yeah. That's just like yeah. you you have radio radioactive material in you, radioactive carbon. Like it's not it has nothing to do with pollution or unnatural or anything. That's just how you were built by yeah. nature. You have yeah. radioactive material in you. Yep. Deal with it. And so the banana equivalent dose is defined as the dose of radiation a person will absorb from eating one banana. Of course. And it expresses the severity of exposure to radiation, such as resulting from nuclear weapons or medical procedures in terms that make sense to most people. Oh, good. Because like a lot of people, you tell them that bananas are mildly radioactive and they're like, should I eat less? Yeah. So hopefully hearing that like and a lethal is, dosage is billions of bananas or is, something. This is why it's so hard. It was so hard for me to wrap my head around because like even reading the Wikipedia page or there's like a really good XKCD graph okay. about banana equivalent doses mm-hmm. and like basically just units of radiation. I see. Um, so it's extremely small. Um, and even on the Wikipedia page, they use that XKCD chart uh-huh. because it's oh. public domain. Okay. Um, so a banana equivalent dose is approximately 10 to the negative seventh or one ten millionth of a sievert. Right. Which is a unit of, of radio- radiation, radiation, radiation absorption. That's what uh, astronauts use. Yeah. Like in the ISS and stuff like that. Well, mm-hmm. not in the ISS because they're protected by the Earth's magnetosphere, but other scientists, yeah. No, they do. They, they do. Yeah, I'm sure they must. Yeah. Um, so a millisievert is a thousandth of a sievert. Yeah. So flight attendants get about 1.5 to 1.7 millisieverts a year. Right, just by being higher up. Mm-hmm. And one sievert is the maximum allowed radiation exposure for NASA astronauts over their career. One sievert? One sievert. Yeah. So you can have, you can eat 10 million bananas before you'd be retired from, the, from NASA. 10 million? Yep. Okay. Because uh, because a banana is one, one ten millionth of a sievert. I see. Um, so ten million bananas. Let's just do some really quick crude math. Um, ten million um, divided by how many bananas would you have to eat a year? In how many years? Let's say the NASA career is thirty years long. To be conservative, if you want to eat enough bananas. To, to equal one sievert, that's uh, 10 million divided by 30. That's like 333,000 bananas per year. I'm glad you just knew that off the top of your head. <laughs> I'm so smart. <laughs> nah, he's joking. Probably Jonathan won't edit it either, so it doesn't matter. Um, four to five sieverts is the dose required to kill a human with a 50% risk within 30 days. Say that one more time for me. Four to five sieverts is the dose required to kill a human with a 50% risk within 30 days. That's an enormous amount. Like that's yeah. so so we're talking about you you need 50 million bananas in, you know, in a mm-hmm. 30 day period of time. To in order to have a 50% risk chance of, of dying. Yeah. Um, 50 sieverts is about how much radiation exposure you would get from spending 10 minutes next to the Chernobyl reactor core after the explosion and, melt- and meltdown. Okay, so you'd have a pretty good chance of dying. <laughs> Very good chance. That Also, I'm just hammering on Netflix shows. The Chernobyl one was so fucking good. Is it? Okay, because it's I thought so about watching that. Good. Okay, cool. Um, there was this one part where... 
they had like maybe 250 people come in who had to like move. This isn't much of a spoiler, but they had like 250 well, yeah, people come in years ago. So yeah, exactly. Come in to move the graphite off the roof into the thing. And they each had eight minutes on t- or maybe less than that, like five minutes on top of the roof in order to scoop the stuff onto the thing. And pretty much probably all of them died. Oh from those goodness. five minutes on top of the roof. And they're like, we have to kill these people because if we don't, then like thousands and hundreds of thousands of people will die. And so basically they were oh, all I see. Martyrs. They were trying to prevent radioactive material from ending up in the atmosphere. Because they had to get the graphite on top of the reactor that from the explosion. They had to get the graphite back into the thing in order to stop the meltdown. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. I see. So this was happening during the meltdown. Yeah. Okay. Um. So yeah, let's move on from Jeez, oh, <laughs> banana equivalent dose. This is a, a lot of Russians have died. I feel like more Russians than anyone else have died from um, radiation radiation poisoning. Oh yeah. Like when you hear about some of the the bomb testing. Also, they had this they had this radioactive or that they had this uranium powered um plane they had a nuclear powered plane for a little while and never it never went beyond prototype stage but every pilot that ever piloted it died from radiation overdose because there was no lead shielding <laughs> between the core oh and the God. pilot because it would be too heavy on a plane yeah so they knowingly put these pilots next to an unshielded uranium core that was spewing out toxic radioactive waste as exhaust um yeah just saying Fucking a. Some crazy motherfuckers. Anyway, let's move on from bananas. Bananas. Uh, we got, bananas. we got two more. And these are these last three are were my favorite researching them. We got two more, but these last three are your favorite. Oh, mm-hmm. the bananas included. The bananas included. Uh, the second to last one is the micromort. <laughs> okay, <laughs> micromort. A micromort is a unit a of fraction of a mort. Mm-hmm. It's a unit of risk measuring. And it measures one in a million probability of death. I see. So it comes from micro and mortality. Sure. So micro morts can be used to measure riskiness of various day-to-day activities. So here's some micro mort equivalents. Okay. Smoking 1.4 cigarettes is a micro mort. Oh. And that is from cancer and heart disease. Yeah. Spending one hour in a coal mine black lung disease so smoking 1.4 cigarettes is equivalent to spending one hour in a coal mine that means basically mm-hmm. being a coal miner is like smoking all day long yeah wow um traveling That's fucked traveling six miles by motorbike okay yeah for an accident. i mean working in the industry i do i yeah. know exactly how dangerous using motorcycles is we see those traveling 17 miles by walking Traveling 15 miles by bicycle, traveling 230 miles by car. Um, these are all for accidents. Traveling a thousand miles by jet, or traveling six thousand miles by jet, and that's um, a micro more for cancer due to increased background radiation. Oh sure, like the host, uh, like, like the, the the hosts on the airplane. Yeah, not the I forget stewardess what the, uh, attendants, flight attendants. attendants. Thank you, God. What the fuck? Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, skydiving 
you experience eight micromorts per skydive. Okay. So some micromorts seem like they're more worth it to me than other micromorts. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, for me, I guess I smoke cigarettes, so I I like every single one and a half cigarettes I have a one in a million chance of increasing my chance of dying. Yeah. But also like I do I mean, about twenty of them a day. So Oh like, man, I didn't realize you were up that high. No, Dang, I'm probably bro. a little lower than that now. But anyway. And there are twenty one in a pack? But yeah, so every day I skydive pretty much. Okay. Yeah. Oh shit. Yeah. That's a weird way to think about it. That helps put it in a different perspective. Does that yeah. make you feel any differently about doing it? Uh yeah. It does? But That's I mean, good. I am addicted, so who knows? Yeah, well, yeah, well, duh. If you weren't addicted, you wouldn't do it, presumably. <laughs> yeah. Um, every year, you experience 48 micromorts in the United States for murder and non-negligent manslaughter. Oh, man. All right. Yep. 48 in a million. And being on the day of your birth, you experience 430 micromorts. Oh yeah, that I mean that makes sense. Yeah, you're like a car being driven off the lot. Your value just <laughs> drops. Like as soon as you come into the world, it's like, all right, well, you're alive now, so your chances of dying just went way up. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Giving vaginal birth is equivalent to 120 micromorts. Jesus, you know what? And you know what's crazy is that in most of the developed world, it's not as bad as the U.S. The U.S. has some of the highest, um. Uh, maternal uh, uh, fatality rates of Weird. any developed country. Really? It's because of our fucking poverty rates and it's because of the access to poor medical care that so many people system. have. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, I mean, it's it's due to the whole medical system. Yeah. But insurance definitely plays a massive part. Um, cesarean is 170 micromorts. Compared to what was childbirth, vaginal birth? 120. Cesarean's more. Mm-hmm. You're more likely to die to a cesarean. I mean, it makes sense. The risk of infection. Yeah. You know, you literally just got cut open. But here's the big one. Ascending Mount Everest is 37,932. Oh, yeah. There's corpses everywhere. You pass dead bodies on your way up no matter. Like, there's no route. Like, everyone takes the same route up. I mean, there's, well, there's a couple of different ones. But most people take the same route, the southern route up. And you're passing, you pass a dozen bodies on your way up. Yeah. So, like, if you're really paranoid, you can probably find a micromort conversion for almost pretty much anything you do. Okay. Like, a millionth of a chance of dying um, is what a micromort is. So that's, that's, I don't know, I just think it's fun. As more and more people, like, kind of datafy their lives as they have access to the technology to do that, um... I could see how you could be healthy and also just like play a fun game of risk uh, risk analysis. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, is it worth it? That's for why, me like, to me as not a very scared person, that's why I think it's fun. Yeah, yeah. But as a really scared person, were, I imagine a micromort would really be could, scary. Could actually scare you. Yeah. yeah. I, like people who are susceptible to like, um, uh, what's the word uh, for hypochondria could easily, I mm-hmm. think, or like the WebMD, you know, yeah. syndrome or the God. Could easily be. We did phobia really so long ago. I can't remember the one where you want to just stay in your house and not leave. Uh, similar to like agoraphobia, though. Agoraphobia. That's okay. what it is. Like if you're agoraphobic, a micromort will not be an interesting thing to learn about. No, probably not. It's not <laughs> a good thing for you to you start measuring things with. Yeah. 
but for me it's just fun yeah um so that was my that was my second to final and second favorite um i want to know how many micromorts it is to go to space I bet it I is bet not decently. as much as Mount Everest. Everest. Not nearly, not nearly. But, but still it's still decent. too much for me. Yeah. Because I am kind of a little... I mean, you've got Challenger fury. and Columbia, and um, there was well, that... And you, just, and you just have, like... That was, like, like that Netflix thing I was talking about. Um, you just have... Like, you don't have the magnetosphere, like, saving you from radiation. Like... All the astronauts, like in one of the episodes, were talking about how they just see flashes of light. In oh their yeah, you eyes, see stars, which are no, they're not stars. They're no, no, no. no. no I mean, they are stars. Yeah, like when you they're, get punched or something. Radiation. It's, you see flashes. You and see you flashes of light, and it's because of like uh, super powered radiation hitting your optical nerve. Yeah, it's it's and, ionizing radiation. Yeah, thank you. Literally, like people people get afraid of microwaves, which are non ionizing radiation. It's, it's as harmless as a radio wave. But, but get out like, of the They're literally getting hit by, you know, not necessarily lots of gamma, but they're mm. being hit by X rays and all sorts of like high powered ultraviolet. Yeah. Um, and it's not safe mostly to be a up. lot of X rays. It's not safe to be up there. No, even in yeah. I mean, and we and we we, and we, we don't, were talking about this recently, and I was like, dude, I ain't wanting to go into space. And you're like, you, you a house could collapse on you any time, and you trust the house. I'm like, fuck you, dude. Oh yeah, well, I'm talking about <laughs> going to space in like a space hotel that uh, presumably okay. has lead lined rooms. Yeah, you know what I mean. So the difference, That's the difference true. is, yeah. is right now we build everything on Earth and ship it up there it's the most costly trip you could possibly okay. imagine okay i didn't actually getting halfway I didn't across actually, the solar systems less expensive ag- than getting up i wasn't into space. agreeing with you then because um i thought you were just talking about being in space nowadays. i don't want to go in a tin can no huh? with a with a bomb strapped to the bottom of it <laughs> no. no i want to go up in like a space plane or no. something more more traditional and or you know like more traditional to to the way i'm used to traveling yeah. and then um just go up to like a space hotel that was assembled and built up in space. So it doesn't matter how heavy the materials are and they can lead line all of the cabins and I don't have to worry about radiation at all. And it, it spins so that I can experience some gravity. amount of gravity in because order to have I would a healthy body. Yeah. And because like, honestly I would have, be having, they, no one right now would let me into space conscious. I have a pretty sensitive stomach. When I go on the whirly bird rides or whatever at the carnival, do you? you I get kind of sick. I get a little really? bit green. Do you ever and get? So, do you ever get uh, sick? I've never like thrown up you ever get, sick. You ever get sick in a car? Sure, I can't read my phone or like really? read a book in a car. No, I get uh, sick. I feel bad for you. Um, that must suck. And so, and the main thing I want to do is go up into space. So either I'm gonna have to have somebody edit my genes someday when they figure out how to do that, or I'm gonna have to take some powerful drugs. You can acclimate eventually. Well, yeah, eventually. I want to experience free fall more than anything, but I know it's going to fuck with you my inner ear. Yeah. Let's move on. Let's move on. Yeah. All right. The Sorry. last. <laughs> no, no, no. I thought it was fun, but uh, we've probably been talking about in this episode for a long time. We started recording late. True. Anyhow, um, the last one I got is the Warhol. And the Warhol is a unit of fame. And it's derived from Andy Warhol's dictum that everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. Okay. So naturally, it represents 15 minutes of fame. Sure. Um, and it was first used by Colin Murphy in 1997. And so there are a couple 
multiples of a Warhol that we're so going like, to talk about. Uh, so like um, Vanilla uh, Vanilla Ice, they had like two Warhols. You think he was famous? He's he's been famous for more than thirty minutes. We remember his fame. Okay, I I feel you. Um, he was relevant for about thirty minutes. So like a Killer Warhol is famous for fifteen thousand minutes or ten point four two days, <laughs> and that's a sort of metric for like a quote unquote nine day wonder. Okay. And a Mega Warhol is famous for 15 million minutes or 28.5 years. Oh, wow. A Mega Warhol. They've got to have some staying power. And coincidentally, that's about how long Andy Warhol himself was famous for before he died in 1987. Okay. So Andy Warhol was a Mega Warhol. Was a Mega Warhol. Um, but yeah, that's all I got about unusual units of measure. You got any others you'd like to bring up? Yeah, just a cord of wood. A cord of wood. Holy shit. Why was that not on the Wikipedia page? <laughs> so uh, the only reason Tell I know this is because I chopped a fuck ton of wood as a kid. I did too. I was like a wood woodchuck. Because we, we, we uh, had a wood-burning stove, and we lived in mm. Michigan, and it got really cold. So we'd go My through. My dad just liked to make us chop wood. <laughs> That's what it fucking Sometimes was. Sometimes I felt like that as a kid. <laughs> I'm like, this is just punishment for being alive. Yeah. Um, seriously. But because uh, we did a lot of wood hauling. We lived in the woods on like 11 acres. Yeah. And we also had neighbors who would give us wood. But anyway, so a cord of wood, which we would go through in the middle of winter, we'd go through about a cord and a half in a week when mm. it got really cold. And uh, a cord of wood is eight feet by eight feet, by four feet of stacked chopped wood. Yep. So it has to be well stacked in like in a cross stack fashion. And if you if so you, like log if cabin stacked, style. If you've stacked wood before, like I've seen wood piles and like stacked wood, and I'm like, what the fuck were you doing? Like, oh, how, yeah, how yeah, did yeah. you do that? Like, why? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, if you've ever stacked wood before, it's like. It's not hard. No. You just like put the piece that would fit there in yep. order to take there. up less space. Yeah, exactly. Where it's you yeah, you need like, to you need to jigsaw a little bit or tetris it a little bit because but it's they're not in different hard. No, because they're different sizes. So yeah. you need to make sure it levels out and forms a level yeah. level stack that it can sit upright and it's not just a pile of wood all thrown together. But like I've looked but at yeah. piles of wood and been like pissed off. Yeah, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. You're like, how the fuck am I going to grab a log from that? Yeah. No, no, Thanks, no. I, haven't, I haven't been pissed it's off so like at how I'm going to have to grab wood out of it. I'm just like pissed off at like the anti-artisanship. <laughs> or like <laughs> the lack of <laughs> or care. Like, the lack of care <sighs> that went into it, you know? <laughs> Yeah, like, second wood's not hard. It's not hard. And you should, you, and like what I liked about it is it instilled in me that even though that that stack of wood was a temporary thing, it still was worth it to just put care and effort into doing yeah. it. Also, it keeps the wood drier because that way the only the bottom logs are in contact with the ground. Yep. If you're not if you're careless and it's the middle of the winter, that means frost's getting into your wood. Yep. And like the, we, the less we wood that you have like, frosted, the we would less stack it like a half foot away from our house. Um, like one of the stacks, like we would have a pile like half half a foot away from our window, so that we could just reach out the window and grab. Oh, that's wood. funny. Okay. Um, but but it'd have to be half foot away because if it was right on the building, then you could get you could get like t 
not ticks. What are they called? Uh, termites. Termites. Yeah, sure. you get termites in the house. Um, but yeah. Anyway, you got anything else? Nah. All right. <laughs> I like that one. Thank you for bringing that up. That is it for this episode. The Explanations is recorded at Rabbit Pen Studios in Eugene, Oregon. It's produced, edited, and providing them sweet fucking licks by Jonathan Cunningham. Art and logo by Monet Moran. Social media management by Alicia Fentress. And my trusty co-host is David Gerondo. I want to thank the Drive With Us podcast and We Like Coffee and About Four People and Tales of True Crime for their recent reviews on iTunes. I really appreciate those reviews. And also, all of them have great podcasts that I highly recommend. Check them out wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to support the show too, leave a review on iTunes. Tell a friend to listen to your favorite episode or go to patreon.com slash Dexplanations. All these things are, help us a lot because we're really trying to get more exposure for the show and we really, really appreciate your support. Likely, <laughs> as always, we got a bunch of things wrong. So if you want to tell us about it or just want to bullshit, hit us up at DexplanationsPodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us at Dexplanations or comment on the Instagram. I'll bring it up in a later episode or do a new episode about it. Oh, and as for you, your coolness is only measurable in megafonsies, the unit of measurement invented by Professor Farnsworth, where a Fonzie is about the amount of coolness inherent in the Happy Days character Fonzie. Bye now. Thank <laughs> you.